Good evening, River House. Let's, let's pray together. See if we haven't prayed enough. <laughs> Lord, we thank you that your presence is here, that somehow in a way that's beyond our mind's ability to comprehend, heaven and earth are joined together in this place. This is your dwelling place, your holy mountain, that you shed your blood to ordain in the earth a place that could become multiplied places, that could become every home represented here, God, every family, every marriage, every workplace, God, that could be a habitation, a dwelling place where we walk with you and talk with you be in relationship with you. We prayed these prayers tonight, Lord, that we open up our hearts and what we're opening to is your desire for deeper fellowship with us. And we just ask that you would accomplish that by your spirit and by your word tonight in this house. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. It's really good to be back. Uh, Jackie and I were down... Uh, ministering uh, last week in California, and we love going and doing that, but there's no place like home. I was thinking during worship of Paul's words. He describes how he says, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. And then the first thing he says to kind of describe what he would think of as a people filled with the Spirit is that they would address one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And I love listening to this congregation sing the way we sing indicates that we're being filled by something that's not of earth, that's coming and energizing us. I want a repetition of like those people, the way they sing, man. It's like they might be intoxicated with something. That's River House. Come on. And some of you might be here for the first time. You're like, that's weird. I know. It's in the Bible. Thank God. <laughs> Whew. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to continue this Acts journey that, that uh, the Spirit's been authoring, and I, uh, I'm, I'm going to kind of start jumping into the last two messages have been in Acts 1, if you've been here, and going to kind of look forward and foreshadow Acts 2, but I felt like uh, the Lord wanted me kind of to sit and to dig a little bit into the context still of what Luke is setting up for us in this passage. And again, the book of Acts is Luke's way of continuing the story of Jesus through the church. That, that what he started in the gospel of Luke should be as one long narrative that continues with the church of that day and then that we get woven to ourselves and it just keeps continuing on and on and on until the end of the age when Jesus finally comes back and all things are made new. Acts is a dangerous book. Acts, picking up the book of Acts is like a book of, stick of dynamite because it will just ruin your life because your life will get overtaken by the life of God. Whoo! Who wants to just be overtaken by the life of God? Yeah, that's, that's the cry of my heart. I don't want my story. I want his story. I want his glory. So uh, in, in looking at Acts 2, this is a little bit of a foreshadow is that Acts 2, uh, Luke is writing it uh, to connect it into the mind of the audience he wrote it for, who would have had a lot of understanding of Jewish 
you know, festivals and Jewish context. And the book of, or the, the, the day of Pentecost, it coincides with two different special events in the life of Israel. One is the, uh, the, the feast of the first fruits, which I'm not going to talk about tonight. But the other one that often people don't realize is that the day of Pentecost, the festival of Pentecost actually was supposed to correlate with the giving of the law of Mount Sinai. Has anybody read this story before? Uh, if you haven't, it's a great story. It's in the book of Exodus. I'm going to actually unpack Exodus a bit tonight. But Exodus is when uh, Egypt or Israel gets taken out of Egypt. And the first thing that God does after he leads them through the Red Sea, you know, let my people go. Prince of Egypt, anybody? <laughs> Come on. Through the Red Sea and he takes them straight to a mountain. Say mountain. Mountains are places where heaven and earth come together. Uh, this Mount Sinai experience was supposed to be like a, a temple experience, and, uh, and, and the law is given. And there's this whole story, we're going to kind of maybe tackle it a little bit tonight, where they make a golden calf, and it says that 3,000 people are killed that day. Say, uh-oh. <laughs> It's not good, but the day of Pentecost, Luke gives us a really good clue that he's trying to cue in the mind of our readers, think Mount Sinai, because he says after Peter preaches a sermon, how many people get saved? 3,000. Luke is writing this account to cue to us, there's a new law being given, not a law written on stones, but a law given by the Spirit upon the tablet of human hearts, and the law that came that authored death because the holiness of God couldn't coexist with the imperfection of man is going to be given that's going to give life to those that are in death. Come on. So that's the foreshadow. That's the foreshadow. So I want to give context, and I felt that the Lord wanted me to actually look at the story of Mount Sinai to actually help us get a sense for the awe and the holiness of what's taking place in Acts 2 with the coming of the Holy Spirit, okay? So to do this, uh, I, 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 we're, so we're going to talk about consecration tonight. Say consecration. That's a beautiful word. Uh, and, and really, we're going to look at this as a word uh, that, that it, it's a preparation of ourselves to enter into fellowship with God. That's what this whole story of Mount Sinai about. And I actually would say this is the story. This is what Acts 1 is all about. And when Jesus says, you know, I want you to wait in Jerusalem until you'll receive the promise of the Father and be clothed with power from on high. And they're in this season of waiting that we talked about and that we've been kind of walking like live. You know, I love that the word of the Lord is living and active. You know what I mean? Like, we're not just talking about history here, but the Spirit's actually speaking through this text and drawing our community into a story. And I believe that the Holy Spirit's working to consecrate us. He's calling us into consecration for the sake of fellowship. Say fellowship. Oh, God wants fellowship. All right, so I would just propose, there's in Exodus 19, this is the beginning, Israel, finally, they've made it through the, the, the Red Sea, they've worked their way to the mountain, and God comes and he speaks, and he says, consecrate, say that. He says, consecrate yourselves today and tomorrow, for on the third day, I'm going to come down and meet with you. <laughs> this is what Jesus is saying to the disciples, consecrate yourselves, wait upon the Lord, for the promise of the Father is going to come down and meet with you. It's a new law. It's a new coming of the Spirit, yeah? Okay, 
So, consecration unto fellowship. We're going to talk about holiness tonight. Some of you don't like the word holiness. That sounds religious to you. And I think God's going to remove a veil tonight so that we're going to see the beauty of God's holiness and get excited about holiness, right? But holiness is not about earning favor. It's about enjoying intimacy with God. And uh, tonight, I want to just give uh, some stories that maybe will help us understand consecration from the lens of love rather from the lens of religious performance, okay? So to do this, we're going to look at the Exodus account. This is kind of like Exodus 19 through about 33. We're just going to look at a couple portions of it. Um, But we're going to look at it and actually understand Mount Sinai as a wedding. Who's been to a wedding? This is going to help frame it. We miss this as modern readers, that this whole thing's supposed to read like a wedding. Isn't that cool? I'm going to tell a story about a wedding I went to one time. I'm just going to like warn you, it's a little bit of an odd story, but it's a good story. Who loves weddings? I missed a wedding last night uh, because I was out of town, but I heard it was super fun. Or maybe two nights ago, the whole Ross family, they're just, don't get too close to the Ross families or you'll just get married because there's all kinds of marriages going on in the Ross clan these days. But I went to this wedding, this is years ago, and I, I, knew, the, I knew the groom, I didn't know the bride as well. Um, but I, I, this, this groom came from this beautiful family, like a family of just generational legacy in the Lord. And this guy was one of the most, like, anointed, humble, holy, like, this guy just reminded you of Jesus. That's the only way that I could describe it. And he grew up across the street from the, the bride, but the bride came from, like, the completely different type of family. And she had gone far, far, far from the Lord, had found herself at one point in a really deep place of darkness, and the groom actually had played a profoundly significant role in bringing salvation to her story. And so this wedding day was like this beautiful moment of this story that had been unfolding that you could only describe as miraculous. Like there was a work of grace, there was a work of redeeming love. It was wonderful. And as the ceremony was happening and as they were exchanging vows, It was one of the most beautiful things I ever witnessed. Like the presence of God was so thick. It was was like you could see him there. And I was just weeping. And people were like weeping because it was clear that like God was at this ceremony. It was more than just like we're gathered here. It was something so holy. So I was just kind of undone. It was this beautiful, beautiful ceremony. And then it ended and you know how you end up going, you have like the... What's it called? Cocktail hour or whatever. So we all went to the cocktail hour and, and you know, everybody's talking about like, like and people were saying they had these different experiences. Like I felt this, I saw this and the spirit, it was just kind of like, everyone's kind of just talking about how beautiful this was. But like after a while, it was like time just kept passing. Pretty soon it was like, where, like <laughs> these pictures are taking forever, you know, like 60 minutes and it's like 90 minutes. Then it was literally like two hours and everybody started getting like, like a little nervous, you know, like what's going on? And then pretty soon it was like two and a half hours. And then people started getting like worried. People started trying to like find family members and they were kind of like not there and not there and in and out. And you could just start to tell like something's not right until then the groom's best man who I knew, 
he walks out and like you could see in his face like he was red. It looked like he was not okay. Like looked like he was angry. And he basically like gets the mic and is like, the wedding's over. Everyone's dismissed. You can go home. And we're driving home like, what is happening? So I waited a few hours to be sensitive and I called the best man. I'm like, can you just tell me what happened? And it turns out that the bride had like one of the waiters at the venue was like an ex-boyfriend from her past and the groom had walked in and there were boundaries being crossed. I just made that story up. But this is the story of God with Israel at Mount Sinai. If you read the account, how it's written to us. God comes to his people. He redeems them out of their slavery. He says, consecrate yourself to me. I've lifted you on eagle's wings. And I'm coming down to take you to myself. And if you study the Hebrew, it's proposal language. It's marriage language. And three days later, he descends down, the God of heaven. Says, I want you out of everyone on the earth. I choose you. And the implied question is, will you choose me? They say, yes. We choose you. Exodus 24-7, they accept the vows. They say, we choose you. You will be our God. You will be our bridegroom. Exodus 24 says that this few verses later, it says that 70 elders come up on the mountain with Moses and Aaron and his sons, and they have a feast in the presence of God. And the connotation is it's a wedding feast. And it says that they all together beheld God. And they saw something like sapphire. And they saw through the sapphire sea and they saw God. And it's this amazing verse that says, and they weren't consumed. God was bringing them to themselves. And just a few chapters later, between the, the ceremony and the consummation, The Lord tells his best man, she cheated on me. She was unfaithful. And there's this very vulnerable conversation where God processes his emotion with his friend and does what any bridegroom would do if they found themselves in that situation. I want to kill her. And you see anger. We get so scared. And we're like, how can God be so angry? Because he's a bridegroom. Because the God of heaven makes himself vulnerable to humans. Meaning he's experienced intense rejection. Isn't it amazing what a story can do to frame something? See, we read this Old Testament story and we clearly say this is wrong. 
Yeah. This is wrong. This is bad. That's a, that's a really sad story. But sometimes we get this weird thing where we're like, in the, old, in the New Testament, we're under grace. And it makes stories like this like, okay. You know, we, we almost are like, because we're under grace, unfaithfulness today doesn't do the same thing to God, to Jesus. We don't want to be religious. We don't want to be like holy. We don't want to be like consecrated. Like we're under grace. And we get this weird perception that somehow like compromise and sin and independent, all these things, like because it's covered by grace, it has no effect upon the heart of Jesus. When he is still the bridegroom. Right, so what I just want to propose that I think many of us, I think many, many in the body of Christ, most people that were raised in the church, I'll say this. Uh, I've talked to so many people over the years that have been wounded by religiosity. Right, and it's like, I don't want this religious yoke, which is this putting upon of this, like, you need to be holy you need to perform. You need to measure up to be good enough for God. Like who has relat, like rejected that message, right? And who wants to put fist up anytime you hear anything that sounds like that message? So what happens though is we often, this is like human's fault, is we like go all the way the other direction. And so we're like, okay, I don't want that. So we've gone from, you know, revolting against uh, legalism, and Jesus despises legalism, by the way, but then we go the other way to like this justified sense of lukewarmness, like this sense to where we've lost the fear of the Lord. You know, we don't tremble at his word. We don't feel responsibility sometimes to consecrate ourselves. And I think of consecration really as like a, it's marriage language. Consecration is what takes place in a bride after a man humbles himself, puts on a knee, and says, will you marry me with this really shiny, expensive rock? Somehow that shiny, expensive rock can like motivate a woman to do things that you'll never see the rest of your marriage, you know? I'm like, honey. <laughs> I'm like, wow, I thought I was getting like green juice every morning at 4 a.m., followed by like, you know, like I'm, I'm teasing, but you, you know what I'm saying? It's like, because there's a season of such anticipation because the bride already knows I am preparing myself for a wedding day. Right? The bride's already looking with that dress. The bride's like, I want to be my best. I want to look as beautiful as I can. This is the day that I will give myself to the one that I love. And so the whole season of between proposal to, to the wedding day is like, ascending this mountain and the, the, there's this vision of this moment and it's usually it's the moment when she's going to turn and walk the aisle and there's going to be this thing where the eyes first lock right and everything is in anticipation there's an abstaining from things because you're anticipating this union that's coming and every it's like anticipation is the word and for those of you that have you know, walked in purity, like Jackie and I, uh, we, we walked in purity until the day of our, 
our wedding and like there's an agony to that anticipation because you're just longing as you feel your heart more and more cleaving and, and, and moving into this place of union that's still not being realized, but everything, like it's not legalism. Nobody had to tell Jackie what she needed to do. She knew what she needed to do because she was longing for that moment, right? And, and this is the context of which the church was born, in, 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 in this, this wedding season, this, this season of anticipation where we are like in the now, that it's almost as if the first bell of the wedding has already rung and that's, that is the coming of the Holy Spirit. It's the beginning of the end and the end of the story is a wedding day and we're like in this tension of like, it's so close. I can hear the, the ring of the bell and it's like, we're longing to just step a few steps further into the realization so that we go from just this proposal into the actual consummation, that we go from the ceremony to the consummation where all things are made new and we're finally one with him. Yeah. That's holiness. That's consecration. That's the motivation of a consecrated life. It's not performance, right? You can't perform for God if he's already proposed to you. <laughs> it's like, what are you performing for? He already said, I love you. When you were dead in your sins and, and, and dead in your trespasses, that is when Christ died for you. That's when he chose, I'm going to marry her. I want you to be mine. So you're... You know, you don't ever have to earn. You don't, you're not earning his favor. You're not earning his love. You're not earning that shiny rock. Right? But consecration is about making yourself ready for it. Consecration, holiness is a consecrated yes. I think that was what the theme of last week was from what I could pick up. A consecrated Yes. Right, holiness isn't performance. It's not earning. It's a consecrated yes. It's living out that consecrated yes to Jesus that says, I want to be ready for you. And not just that, we want to be ready for him. The bridal identity is a corporate, say corporate. It's a corporate identity. This is why Paul would be so bent over. He says, the daily pressure of the church, who's not led into sin without my intense concern? Because Paul saw himself as a friend of the bridegroom that was getting the bride, the church, ready for Jesus. Right, this is Ephesians 4. It's all the fivefold gifting. It's when every part of the body works itself that the whole body will build itself up in love. This bridal identity, this is our corporate inheritance. And it's his inheritance, really. So consecrated love, yes, I put this, if you're taking notes. Love plus effort, say effort. <laughs> you don't like that word. Effort. Dallas Willard says, grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning Right, we often think that because we're in the new covenant under grace, which we're going to unpack this in a minute, 
It's like, oh, it's not requires anything effort of me. Like Jesus did it all. No, Jesus paid it all. He did things that we will never be able to do. But he did not take all the responsibility from us and say like, yeah, you just sit on the couch, play video games all day and it'll be great. Right? He, he gave it all and then he asked for everything in return. And he doesn't ask for what's impossible of us, but he does ask for a consecrated yes. Right? He does ask for the I do. Here's my vow to you. Here's my offering of myself to you. But he does ask for a reply. It's vulnerable. The most nerve-wracking moment of my life is when I proposed to Jackie. And then I thought I was going to pass out the day of my wedding. Right? But let me just give you a marriage example of a consecrated yes. All right? Here's, here's the marriage example. Right, you say yes, right? Consecrated yes is a love plus effort. So I said yes to Jackie, we did our vows, and boy, let me tell you, I had no idea how one short vow was gonna change everything in my life. Right, those vows, nobody made me do them. That's what makes a marriage vow beautiful. Right, I, I hate, kind of side note, I hate when people are like, God told me she's the one. I'm like, well, what about you? Like, do you choose that she's the one? I, I'm all want it. You want God to endorse your decision? But I'm like, dude, I tell guys, whenever they tell me God told me she's the one, I'm like, well, I'm glad God thinks that that's a good idea. But at the end of the day, it's your covenant you're making, not his. He'll join you. You want to know that he's going to endorse it. But I'm like, this is about you putting your neck on the line like you'll never have to ever again before or after. You are stripping yourself completely and saying, I have no other motive but love. And I want you to be my treasured possession out of all the other people on the earth. I want you forever. Whew, that's why I was nervous that day, right? So I vow, I vow, we make these vows, and then all of a sudden, there was no law, there was no like 10 commandments with 613 other ordinances that I needed to do, but pretty soon I learned there was a new law in my life. It was the law of Jackie. And I'm like, whoa, I'm just so in love with you. And I'm like, wow, I'm 30, almost 30 and I was a virgin. And I'm like, woo, it's just so beautiful and it's love and all this stuff. And I'm like, my feel goods and it's so happy. And then all of a sudden one day, it wasn't that long. I think it was maybe five days in, you know, post honeymoon. It's like, hey, the dishes are really, really dirty over there. Oh, but I'm so in love, babe. Let's just close our eyes to all those things. Just stay right here. And it's like, and like your underwear is everywhere. And like, are you ever going to cook? And like, I'm doing everything. I'm kind of tired. And like, all of a sudden I'm like, whoa. And she's like, and yeah, like what's all the passcodes to everything on your phone? So I'm going to start reading all your text messages. I'm like, oh my gosh. And she's like, oh yeah, and I read your journal one day because you left it open, but like, that's okay. <laughs> and then I'm like, all kinds of like, what is happening? So I thought it was just like this love. All of a sudden I'm like, this is work. What's wrong here, Lord? And we say these vows from love and we cry and they are so real. And then it takes a lot of effort to then actually discipline your life around that yes that comes from love. It'll get religious. If the yes is coming from, from, from performance, yeah, that's going to break up. But if the yes is love, yes, love. And then effort protects that yes. And part of that yes is a whole bunch of no's. 
Part of that yes is a whole bunch of other yeses. Right? Part of that yes is all types of things, right? It's a whole new ecosystem. It's a covenant relationship. And that covenant has its whole ecosystem that, that requires something of you every day of your life. It's proximity, it's intimacy, it's, it's, it's everything, right? And pretty soon you're like, oh my gosh, like I can't be in a fight with you and be okay anymore. Now it's like, oh my gosh, I can't just like do whatever I want when I'm having a bad day and I come home from work. Now it's like, oh my gosh, there's a level of accountability. It's effort. It's love. It is pure love, but it is effort. That's a consecrated yes. Right? Jackie isn't being religious. She's being a spouse. When she asks for that yes, she's not being religious. She actually has a right to put demand upon my yes. She has a right to say, no, I actually don't want that and I want this. She has a right to speak into every decision now because she's my spouse. I think we miss sometimes that Jesus wants to be a spouse. He, he actually didn't shed his blood just to be buddies. And this is the deal. You don't get to pick and choose Jesus. Oh, well, I love your friendship, but I don't really want the cost of covenant. That is painful rejection. We get in trouble when we dehumanize the heart of the Lord. He's like, if you want to see my, my heart, want is connection with you. He's being a spouse. The book of Hebrews, there's, you can kind of gather that part of the audience that most likely Paul is writing to are are people uh, that were Jews that have perhaps, um, that were Messianic Jews that had kind of backslidden because there's four different times he addresses, he gives a warning, say warning. This is New Testament, by the way, because I, I want you to just get that this isn't just an Old Testament story. So we're gonna go on a little Hebrews dive here. Uh, the, the verses will be on the screen. This is Hebrews three twelve through 15. Take care, brothers and sisters, that there will not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another every day as long as it's still called today so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we've become partakers of Christ. Partakers, that's speaking of union. If we keep the beginning of our commitment firm until the end, while it's said, today if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as when they provoked me. So he's saying, don't be hardened. Don't be hardened by sin. Don't fall away from God. Don't let your heart drift from union with Jesus. This is Hebrews 6, 4 through 6. These are, these are intense words. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers. There's that word again. That's union. 
partakers of the Holy Spirit, which is bringing the covenant of Jesus, and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away. It's impossible, backing up, to restore them again to repentance, since they again crucified them to themselves, the Son of God, and put him to open shame. Hebrews 10, 26 through 29 For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has ignored the law of Moses is put to death without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? And has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the spirit of grace. This is John Piper. If we don't feel strong desires for the manifestation of the glory of God, It is not because you've drunk deeply and are satisfied. It is because we have nibbled so long at the table of the world. Our soul is stuffed with small things. And there's no room for the great. There's hope, but bear with me, okay? I think that we have lost sight of the goodness of God expressed in his nature as a judge. We've somehow concocted this idea that because of grace, sin doesn't need to be judged. No, sin, like we want sin to be judged because the judgment of God is what makes what's wrong right. Judgment cost Jesus everything. He became sin who knew no sin. So we could become the righteousness of God. But sometimes I think we fail to recognize the depth of the brokenness of sin and how egregious it is to our relationship with Jesus. Still, if sin has not been confessed, repented, and dealt with, it stands in this egregious place of, of breaking covenant. It's, it's adulterous before the Lord. It's that bride who he finds doing unthinkable things to him. It's the pain of love. Not condescension, agony. So I'll just I'll just go through this list. These are these are things that I think are that stand in the way between us and a consecrated yes. All right, big one in our culture: love of money. Do you have love of money? 
Do you have sticky fingers with God? You know sticky fingers? You hold on to things you shouldn't? How long does it take you to obey when he tells you to give? You know, are you always checking on money? Is money in a place? Like, are you adulterating with money? Money's not evil, but do you love money? Because it's a big deal if you do. Right? Do you have lust? Porn addiction. Do you masturbate habitually? I'm going there. Do you engage with sex outside of covenant? That's a problem. Like that, ugh, that we felt when I told that story. That's what Jesus feels. It's not the end of the story, but I'm intentionally pausing here. Right, do, you, do you binge out on Netflix or whatever other apps there are? Disney Plus, TV, YouTube. Like, do you spend more time on those things than you do in the Word of God and prayer? I'm not trying to be religious. Wedding. We're talking about a wedding. We're talking about the only one who satisfies. Talking about the one who formed you and fashioned you so that he could give vent to his glory in you. Talking about the one that says in his presence is fullness of joy and his right hand are pleasures forever. And he says, I choose you to be my possession that I can give it all to. Video games, video games. I worry about video games, the amount of hours mindlessly given to something that it's not going to save, it's not going to edify, it's not going to give joy. Again, all these things in moderation, most of these things in moderation. I'm not trying, I'm not like a calling us to go move between here and Mountain Home on a commune or something. <laughs> just, just make that clear. <laughs> uh, apps, are you checking your apps, your phone, Zillow? I think someone in here, Zillow's in the way. I'm serious. I'm serious. Like, is it worth it to check your home for the 80th time? It might have gone up five grand, you know? It's like, it's all right. Your neighbor's house isn't that interesting. The word of God has life for you. Are you addicted to Amazon, shopping, Pinterest, shopping, clothes, shopping, any shopping? Anything that steals gratitude and contentment? Makes you feel like he's holding out on you instead of seeing that he's abundantly lavished you with this goodness. That's what consumption does to us. Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, illicit drugs, marijuana, microdosing. I've heard that's a new thing. People microdose small amounts of drugs, like watch The Chosen. This is, this is real. It's like in the church. Microdosing, they'll microdose on small amounts of drugs, mushrooms, stuff like that, LSD, watch the chosen to have a trip. A trip with Jesus. This is not this is not the way. Alcohol. Alcohol in excess. 
alcohol? Do you need alcohol to alter your mood? Do you come home and need alcohol to take the edge off the day? You're turning to alcohol instead of Jesus. Like it's a problem. Again, I'm not, I'm not a, alcohol's not sin. The list could go on and on and I'm not like a, trying to hit you across the head. I'm trying to call you to a wedding. The last warning in Hebrews actually is Hebrews chapter 12 and it's the whole story. It begins with the Exodus 19 through 32 account. We just have a few of the verses. You can read the context yourself starting in verse 18. Paul is detailing, he said, you're not just coming to the mountain of old with the fire on the mountain and it was so holy you couldn't touch and everyone was so afraid because the holiness of God, right? This is the paradox that scripture, the whole narrative of scripture is trying to answer the paradox, to unlock the paradox of how can a holy God dwell with the sinful humanity, right? We, we lose sight of the power of holiness. If God created the sun and we can't get within like a million miles of the sun without disintegrating, how does the sinful, broken, mortal aspects of us relate with a God who is absolutely holy? That's, this is the story of scripture, right? So Paul's writing, it's, you're not just coming to that mountain. He says, well, I think it's up there. We'll pick up in Mount 22, verse 22 says, but you've come to Mount Zion into the city of the living God. So he's saying, you're coming to the heavenly mountain. This is where Jesus has taken us. And to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to myriads of angels. That's thousands upon thousands of angels. This is where Jesus has brought you. If you have received the blood of the covenant of Christ, this is where it has taken you. To the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. That's good news. Right? Jesus tells his disciples, rejoice because your names are written in the book of life, this is what Paul's writing. You're coming to a better reality, to a better covenant. Your name's in heaven. And the spirits of the righteous made perfect. And to Jesus, say Jesus. We just love that name, Jesus. The mediator of a new covenant. Say new covenant. Think marriage. Never hear new covenant again and don't think marriage. This is why marriage is so attacked by the enemy. Because marriage is what disciples us into our knowledge of covenant. New covenant. The blood of the, the, the Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant into the sprinkled blood, which speaks better than the blood of Abel. What does blood of Abel speak? Justice. Justice. Justice, vindication, that's what Abel's blood, but what does Jesus' blood speak? Forgive them, forgive them, forgive them. At the night of Passover, Jesus gives him, he's, he's going through the Seder meal. And again, this is Exodus. This is Exodus 6, where God promises, he says, this is who I am. This is what I'm gonna do for you. I'm gonna take you out of the land of Egypt. Then he says, I'm gonna take you for a possession. It's again, it's the proposal. And the cups of the Seder meal and Passover, there's four cups, say four cups. 
four cups. The first two are about that God was going to deliver them from Egypt. And then the third cup was the cup of the betrothal. This is where Jesus pauses the story. and He says, hold up. We're not talking Old Testament now. This is the new covenant. I'm going to propose to you. And he says, take this and drink. And every time you drink it, remember that I have betrothed myself to you. And then he says, this is what, and he's actually prophesying what his betrothal is going to be. And what is the betrothal? The betrothal, the, the, the proposal is the cross. Because he already knows the story of human sin. He knows what's going to happen. He knows there's going to be a betrayal. He knows that the golden calf will be worshipped again and again and again. But he's, not, he's offering a better blood from a better covenant. And so he's saying, here is my proposal to you. I'm going to go and give my life so that you could drink the blood of the new covenant that has the power to sprinkle you clean and make you new. The fourth cup is the cup of consummation, which the first drip of that cup was Pentecost. This is why we're foreshadowing Pentecost. And so the disciples, the disciples all the way reverting back. Consecrate yourselves today and tomorrow. And on which day? The third day, I'm gonna come to you. The disciples have to go through the dark night of the cross. It's this consecration journey that gets them to Pentecost. This is what I'm trying to tie together in your minds. Are you with me? The crescendo is the blood. We could continue reading in Hebrews 12, but, and it's a great, I'd say, read this whole context. It ends, it's, it's talking that God's a consuming fire. Like, listen to him. Don't be hard-hearted. Don't let sin cause you to so harden yourself that you stop repenting, that you don't humble yourself, that you don't confess because that sprinkled blood has the power to transform you. Right, but God says, consecrate yourselves. This is Exodus 19, 10 and 11. The Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and have them wash their garments. Say garments. Have them wash their garments, Moses, and have them ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. I'm trying to bridge Old to New Testament. This isn't an Old Testament story because this same passage shows up again in Revelation, which is the end of the story. And look at what the end of the story says. This is Revelation. It's on the screen, 7, 13 through 17. Then one of the elders or the angels responded to me. This is John. He said, these who are clothed in white robes, who are they and where have they come from? I said to him, my Lord, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. For this reason, they are before the throne of God. They serve him, which is the same word for worship. They worship him. They serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tabernacle over them. They will no longer hunger or thirst, nor will the sun beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb is the center of the throne and will be their shepherd and will guide them to springs of the water of life. And God will wipe every tear from their eyes. 
Who are these ones? Who is this chosen priesthood, this royal people, this holy nation? Who are these ones who are washed in white, standing blameless with great joy, as the book of Jude said, that's a promise, that we would stand before the greatness of his glory, blameless with great joy. Who are these people? They are those that have washed themselves. They have washed their garments in the blood of the lamb. No matter what you've done, no matter what you do, only love gets to define you. But you have to humble yourself. You have to confess. You have to allow your heart. The scriptures talk about, it says their their hearts were cut to the quick. They were pierced. There's something about the Holy Spirit. It says he convicts us concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. There's that word. And it says because the ruler of this world is judged. We have to let ourselves be cut and even say, God, would you come and judge? Would you come and cleanse? And would you put to death the old man so that I can become a new man in Christ? Right, but this requires effort sometimes. This requires the humbling of ourselves before the Lord. We don't have to do it, but it doesn't. You see the invitation. We have to make ourselves ready. I'm going to close with this, and then I'm going to open the altar. This is a story from a man called Reese Howells. He started a Bible college in the early 1900s. He's an amazing man of faith. I've been there. It's still to this day in Wales. Reinhard Bonnke was trained in this Bible college. And I think this testimony of when the Spirit was preparing him to have his own Acts 2 experience, this was what led up to it. Says the meeting with the Holy Ghost was just as real to Reese Howells as his meeting with the Savior those years before. I saw him as a person apart from flesh and blood, and he said to me, As the Savior has a body, so I dwell in the cleansed temple of the believer. I am a person, I am God, and I come to ask you to give your body to me that I may work through it. I need a body for my temple but it must belong to me without reserve. For two persons with different wills can never live in the same body. Will you give me yours? But know that if I come in, I come as God, and you must go out. I will not mix myself with yourself. He made it very plain to me that he would not share my life. I saw the honor he gave me in offering to indwell me, But there were many things very dear to me, and I knew he wouldn't keep any of them. The change he would make was very clear. It meant every bit of my fallen nature was to go to the cross. And then he would bring in his own life and his own nature. It was unconditional surrender. I intended to do it, but oh, the cost. I wept for days. I lost seven pounds in weight just because I saw what he was offering to me and I wished that I had never seen it. Yet he kept reminding me that he had only come to take what I had already promised to Jesus, not in part, but the whole of me. Since Jesus died for me and I had died in him, I knew that the new life was his and not mine. That had been clear in my mind for three years and so now the Holy Spirit was coming to take what was his own. I saw that the Holy Ghost in me could live like Jesus 
Everything he told me appealed to me. It was only a question of the loss there would be in doing it. I didn't give my answer in a moment because he didn't want me to. It took five days to make the decision, days which were spent alone with God. And like Isaiah, I saw his holiness, and in seeing his holiness, I saw my own corrupt nature. It wasn't sin that I saw, but I saw my nature touched by the fall. I knew I'd been cleansed, I saw that there was, but I saw that there was as much difference between the Holy Ghost and myself as between light and darkness. The Holy Spirit went on dealing with me, and it wasn't sin he was dealing with. It was self, the last thing, that thing which came from the fall. And then he ends, after five days, the Lord comes to him and said, time's up. You have till six o'clock. I asked God for more time. He continued, but God said, you will not have a minute after six o'clock. When I heard that, it was as if a wild beast rose up in me and said, you gave me a free will. And now you're forcing me to give it up. And God replied, I don't force you. But for three years, you have been saying to me that you are not your own and that you wanted to give your life completely to Jesus as completely as he gave his for you. He said he waited until the hour of six, the minute of six, and he humbled himself. He said, I'm willing. The heart of Jesus is after a pure bride. And the blood of Jesus shed on the cross has the power to do by the Spirit what we cannot do for ourselves. I have a sense in my heart that tonight there's probably a number of things the Lord's doing and I'm not trying to force some sort of emotional decision but I do want to create an, a, an opportunity for those that need to come and wash their garments, to wash their garments tonight. I'm going to have uh, Becca come up, and I, I asked her if she could just play that song. You know, what can wash away my sin? And some of you may be hung up on those verses in Hebrew, Hebrews that says, you know, if you backslide, there's no more sacrifices for sins. And all I would say to you is that God is able. God is able and he's not a God of condemnation. Some of you may be here tonight and you say, I don't know Jesus. I've never really surrendered or given him my life. There's an opportunity to come and, and, and receive Jesus tonight. Uh, some of you are here and you're convicted of sin. Praise the Lord. Right? The Holy Spirit is the one who is preparing the bride for the bridegroom. And I just invite you to yield and confess that sin and let him wash you tonight. Uh, we, we have communion available. I think that you know, this, is, this is the meal. This is our hope. This is the life. This is the blood of the covenant. This is the body that was broken, the blood that was shed. This is the proposal of Jesus to say, I want you. And the heart of Jesus, it's, it's not, he, he's speaking as a spouse. It's not religious. He, he's not going to violate your will. You're, this isn't about some sort of shame-based response. This is him saying, I want fellowship with you. And he gave everything. He, he solved the paradox. 
himself. It cost him everything. It cost him a dark night. It cost him betrayal. It cost him, it cost him. I hope you hear that tonight. It cost him. It, it, it doesn't feel good to him. He is a lover. But where sin abounds, grace even more. And there is grace. There's grace. And so I'm gonna pray and I'm just, and maybe, maybe actually let's just stand and let's just sing this song together. And, and I'm not gonna close it. I'm, I'm gonna just create space. And it, as we're singing this song, about the blood of Jesus. I just, I invite you that anyone who is, if you're feeling unworthy, come to come to the table of the Lord. If you're feeling hopeless, come. If you're at the the end of yourself, come. Come, it's what Jackie was praying at transition. Open the door to Jesus. You are not your own savior. And if you've lost devotion, if, you've, if you're lukewarm, if you're numb, come, come. renewing vows tonight some of you it's like he's renewing vows for some of you he's calling you to the altar right now 
He said, will you come back? Come back. Come back to me. Come back to my heart. I, I never left. I never left. 